Not that I want her going around the Marvel Universe and collecting tongues, but although... But some tongues should be collected. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is award-winning comics scribe Steve Orlando, my friend, full disclosure, also my client. I am really excited to have Steve on the pod. You may know him from his extensive work at DC Comics on titles like Midnighter, Midnighter and Apollo, Justice League of America, Supergirl, Wonder Woman, the very critically acclaimed Marshall. Manhunter and various other work. He recently made his Marvel debut with a series of one-shots and a mini that's a series of one-shots for the 50th anniversary of Man-Thing called Curse of the Man-Thing featuring in a guest appearance the former X-Man Marrow, who is the character we are here to talk about today. Steve, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm under attack by my my kryptonite, which is to say seasonal allergies. Yeah, I'm pounding Zyrtec like it's my job this month. I've taken three of them and two Flonase <laughs> blasts, and that's just for this podcast. So I appreciate it. Very glad that you can't see my my seasonal rosacea uh, and excited to talk about Mero. Uh, we're essentially the same skin color right now. Yeah, you're very pink. A nice pinkish hue. <laughs> I'm happy to be here and angry and angry at nature. That's how I'm doing. I fully get that. You were actually one of the first people who said that you wanted to come on the podcast. And I have set aside Marrow for you from the jump because she was your first choice. I wanted to time it with the release of your Marvel work. And it turned out that you were writing about Marrow. So it's a nice bit of synergy. That last issue just came out this month featured Magic and her Dark Riders, a new team out of Krakoa of monstrous mutants. Also a cameo from sorceress Jennifer Kale, an X-Men adjacent character I've always enjoyed. So it's worth reading if you're a Jennifer Kale head, which you know, I think some of the listeners of this podcast are. I'd love to, before we get into Marrow, hear sort of briefly about your origin story with the X-Men, your history with these characters and why you felt drawn to them and specifically to Marrow. Well, I think like a lot of folks, my entry point with the X-Men was not necessarily in comics. I was reading comics in the 80s, for example, but by complete happenstance, it was mostly West Coast Avengers because that's what you could find uh, in the quarter bins in flea markets <laughs> in Syracuse. You know, a lot of yeah. West Coast, uh, a lot of West Coast Avengers, Master Pandemonium, uh, stuff like that. However, the entry point for me was animation, but it wasn't the 1992 show. It was actually the late 80s, early 90s pilot, Pride of the X-Men. Love Pride of the X-Men. Most folks would probably recognize if they don't know about the cartoon, though most people listening to this podcast probably do. It was also the basis for the arcade game that was mm -hmm. super popular. So for me, it was that it was that uh, it was that pilot, uh, and, and then it was also the arcade game, which essentially featured all the characters from the pilot. Dazzler store. Yeah, I yeah. was going to say if we weren't talking <laughs> about Mero, we'd be talking about Dazzler. And it's also why I was shocked when Wolverine was Canadian uh, a couple years later. Yeah, because he's Australian in Pride of the X-Men. Seemingly for no reason, but he does call Nightcrawler a dingo, I think. He does. Anyway, I, I was on 
you know, basically on board since then. I rented that. I mean, God, Video King was probably worn out of renting that VHS to me. I'm, I'm dating <laughs> myself by saying both Video King and VHS. I got it from Blockbuster until I found it in a store. So I get it. VHS era. And yeah, it really colored a lot of my perceptions, actually, because I hadn't we didn't have a comic store where I grew up in the suburbs of Syracuse yet, like a modern comic store. We just had like back issues at the flea market. So a lot of what I knew about X-Men was uh, based on the cartoon, the console, and then soon after, uh, like collectible uh, non-sports cards. So like I knew about X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold team, but I definitely, I thought Rogue was Dazzler, for example, because, (laughs) oh, a woman wearing a jacket. Wearing the jacket, right. Little did I know in the 90s, soon every Avenger- Everybody wore a jacket. Everyone was wearing a leather jacket. But um, so I I, I came around it to a bunch of different ways. And then the 19, in 92, the show started and I was obviously on board there. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and at, at that point, I was I was all in, although there was almost no Dazzler in that show. So it was very hard for me. Yeah, no, just a couple cameos. Weirdly, most of the characters I love from part of the X-Men, mainly Dazzler and uh, Colossus, because I'm part Russian, like they weren't in the show uh, basically at all. Right there. You know, Colossus got a couple of focus episodes, but there wasn't a ton. So I sort of had to reevaluate who I liked. But I learned a lot about them from that. Uh, and uh, soon after, like in the mid 90s, we got a comic store. So from that point on, I could I could pick up collections. I could read stuff. I could get Wizard Magazine. And, you know, it wasn't soon after that my two mentors, Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel, took over um, took over X-Men and Uncanny. And they didn't create Marrow. I'm pretty sure Lobdell created Marrow. It was Lobdell, but they really fleshed her out in their run on those core They're titles. They're the ones that brought, you know, Marrow, Reyes... And Maggot. And Maggot to the team. And those are all characters that, I mean, again, we could be talking about Maggot. I think that's a character. <laughs> Maybe we'll have you back for a, seven, a Maggot I mean, deep Honestly, dive. like, I think he's probably seven years ahead of his time or something. You know, if, if, if that was a Grant Morrison creation, he'd be in the Hall of Fame right now. But people weren't ready for weird mutants in the late 90s like they were when we got, like, No Girl and Glob Herman and stuff in the early 2000s. Yeah, I think you're probably not wrong. So, yeah, I, I came around it in a bunch of different ways. But then... By the time the, that Siegel and Kelly were on X-Men, I was just reading it, you know, uh, I was just reading it monthly. Uh, I think ev- almost every kid gravitates towards X-Men just because of the the, the sort of otherness that, that mutants represent, which is really easy to understand when you're a kid, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really easy to engage with. And it, you know, almost everyone has something that they feel othered about. It might even be that they like comics, you know, so. Right. No, if you, as long as you're, if you, even just being a nerd, you get the misfit thing before you even bring the minority angle in X-Men is very oh, appealing yeah. on that level. And it was sort of keyed into that, but you know, it's funny when I think back, like I was, I mean, I was always, I always really did identify with Mara, which we'll talk about more in this podcast, but it's more than I even remembered, you know, like when the X-Men movie came out in 2000, I was still making custom action figures. And the one that I made was like a movie version of Mero, mm. uh, which I'm pretty sure was made from a Todd McFarlane Danger Girl body and then a repainted Wanda uh, from Spawn's head that I put on it. <laughs> I've always been jealous of people who can do things like that. I have bad fine motor skills. I can't like paint miniatures or anything. They always look like garbage. Well, it was movie style and it was seven inches tall. And I just, because it was movie style, she had pink skin uh, bones and an all black costume. because it was. So that's easier, right? Yeah. Uh, so like, I, we're not talking about uh, Michelangelo here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I was I was in with that for, uh, for a long time. Um, and I still, you know, like, 
I was pretty young when all that happened, so I didn't really understand a lot of this, the inner workings of comics, but I just, I gravitated towards those characters. And, you know, it was, I probably wouldn't have stuck with X-Men, even though I liked her, other than the fact that it was also Siegel and Kelly that after a long time brought Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, and Colossus back from Excalibur. So, like, right, brought a lot of things, not just new characters that I came to love, but, I mean, Colossus, even before a character like Mero, was my boy, because he was the most like me. You know, and so for him to come back was a big, big moment for me. It's interesting. For me, that was a moment where I was really disappointed with X-Men because I loved Excalibur and it ended and they sent the characters back to the main team and there were all these new characters and Operation Zero Tolerance just was like never my vibe, that whole era. I remember I liked Reyes a lot. Well, I missed, I, I will admit, I missed Zero Tolerance. That was right before, like, you want to talk about the classic comic experience of, like, joining stuff in media res. Because right. uh, <laughs> that's where she joins the team, is, is OZT. Yeah, yeah. So I knew that Zero Tolerance had happened because people were talking about it. But I didn't really know what it was. I didn't really know who Bastion was. Yeah, I just found Bastion kind of boring, and there was so much Bastion for a but while. But I dropped off, as I remember, something. I probably left when Siegel and Kelly left, actually, in retrospect, because I, I wasn't there for like Eve of Destruction and all the stuff that led into Grant and Joe Casey taking over a couple of years. Yeah, because the um, I was looking over Mara's publication history in advance of this, and I was struck by she really got screwed by like a one-two punch first. Siegel and Kelly leave and there's that Alan Davis era where like, and I'm an Alan Davis fan, but Alan Davis will tell you this is like circa the 12. He was scripting stories that editorial requested. It was like not, you know, it was very much work for hire. He knows it's not very good. And Marrow in that arc gets put in a scroll device by Gambit to heal her from an injury. And she ends up suddenly beautiful and like her bones turn into like a bonekini with like a bone thong and like bone bra cups. And it's just like not the appeal of the character to me seems to be the fact that she is ugly, that she is this visible mutant who well, she's not traditionally attractive. Like, like ugly is obviously. Subjective. Well, she calls herself ugly, but like, it's that, you know, she is a Morlock. She's not pretty in the way that previous versions of this archetype, this young teenage girl who joins the X-Men Kitty Pride, Jubilee, they are pretty girls. I mean, Kitty always felt like she wasn't as pretty as Storm, but she was perfectly traditionally attractive. So making Marrow suddenly cute seemed like it kind of, for the people who loved Marrow, it kind of took the energy out of the character. And it was a slow creep because when she's introduced as a villain in Gene Nation and all those Lobdell stories, she has bones sprouting all over her body. They're like erupting out of her scalp. She has like a oh, creepy- Oh, and she has the weird like quasimodic hair as well. Yeah, like, and she's got like, you know, her, she's kind of emaciated and has this like creepy jaw and milky eyes and stuff. They really toned that down over time once she became a heroic character. And then this final transformation kind of took the wind out of her sails. Then Claremont comes in for the revolution in 2000, does the six month gap. And in the six month gap, she's just gone. Cause I guess he was like not into her. So he was just like, uh, no, I'm dropping that character. And Lovedell like brought her to a couple of Spider-Man stories or whatever, but that is right in 2000, right before Morrison takes over, she is just gone. And then she winds up in the Frank Thierry Weapon X, which is not a book I like. So that's, I don't know. Did you ever read that? 
Uh, I n- is that the one where Wild Child looked kind of like uh, yeah, Faratu? I was in and out. Yeah, I just like. I mean, it opens with she has this like um, one shot by a writer named Christina Z, who I'm not otherwise familiar with. Christina was a big writer. She was a big Top Cow writer. Oh, okay. That's like Witchblade and stuff, right? Like, I'm just not a Top Cow person. But in that, she gets raped by Mesmero and then like convinced to join him in Weapon X. I don't know. I was not crazy about it. That book was just like very sexually violent and I don't know. Again, it was like, Marrow's hot now. And I was like, this feels like it's not the point of Marrow. You know, like she didn't have any visible bones anymore. I just didn't really get it. Yeah, I th- but you know, I, I would agree, but I think that they found a good sort of balance, at least in the current era. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because like she did have a pretty wild arc from you know coming, uh, you know, coming from she like like she appeared in the Lobdell and Joe Mad era to this finding her beauty and then even being pregnant. Uh, or yeah, with in the Cyspiria run. You no, know, like, but then again, when you look back at characters like her. You know, that sort of sign curve of, of pride and confidence is not, you know, it's not unlike what go, what Beast goes through or something mm-hmm. like that. So I, on one hand, yeah, there were parts that weren't working that, that maybe I thought sort of straight away from the core of the character. But, you know, that also seems to be par for the course when you've been in this sort of melodrama for, at this point, over 20 years. Yeah. Which is to say the overall X-Men arc. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it is very much high drama. What was it that, stood out to you about her in those stories in the 90s when she was such a bold new character that was being pushed what did you like about her specifically the attitude you know i was never a jubilee person i was never a a shadow cat person um and that's not just be i was probably the age to be a jubilee person honestly i mean she was the pov character Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 90s, in the early 90s show. Hell, she dated Robin in DC versus Marvel. She sure did, yeah. Like, and, and Tim Drake was my Robin. So like, there's no there's no better answer that it should have been her. But it just wasn't me. You know, she didn't have the anger. She didn't have the rebellion. Uh, and, and she didn't really question authority. And those are all things that Marrow did from the start. Not to say I was a delinquent. Um, I mean, I was on behavioral reports starting in second grade. <laughs> but that was just for talking too much, which is part of my culture. So that I just, I responded, uh, like I said, to that anger and that attitude, you know, and the fact that underneath it, it was all kind of a front. It was for her own protection. You, know, you saw there's that, um, the annual, I think, with Herman Garcia, where like she goes on a, she goes on a bender and is threatened to kill cops, but it's really all just to act out. So Cannibal notices her, you know? Mm-hmm. Similarly, like there's that unlimited issue that Brian K. Vaughan did where she's doing nothing but acting out, but it's just to get Kitty to notice her. Like, because those are sort of the two characters that she seems most enamored with, but she's in that second grader kind of way where she pulls their hair for attention. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I would agree. And like, the other thing is her life really was fucked up, you know, like it, like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's heightened in a way. I mean, Jubilee gets attacked by Sentinels and such. I'll be honest, because I wasn't reading that, I don't know how she joined the team in the comic. I'm just going off the TV show, but the TV show is a pretty close adaptation. She stows away with them through a portal after a thing at the mall. So it's actually not that off in the TV show. But it is like, 
you know, Mero's story, perhaps my like 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 I imagined mine was was full of much more like ups and downs and high tension intrigues. Like she joined the team and had to live with Storm, someone who ripped out her fucking heart. Yep. It's not like they had a fight over how to deal with humanity or something like that, or like they have mild disagreements on policy, or like Storm doesn't like her attitude. She doesn't like her attitude, yeah, but also like again, she ripped out her heart. She tried to kill her, yeah. So like it was it was immediately a pressure cooker. But I also liked, uh, you know, that you could see with her that even despite all that trauma had happened, she still had real emotional connection. She still had real needs. And she I mean, she was on a journey. It was just going to be a harder one, uh, mm -hmm. I think, than a lot of other types of folks that came before her. Yeah. And I think that it is really kind of a shame that the journey doesn't conclude properly like doesn't really click together she kind of just gets dropped and then in house of m she gets decimated and then she's just kind of in the background for a while until Cy spurrier used her in his run on x-force where she gets repowered by a nefarious experiment and it doesn't go so well for her it kind of returns her to the body horror scary horror character vibe that she had in the 90s material yeah, I mean, I think that uh, to me, that is the purest essence of the character. I mean, yeah, look, for, I agree. You know, she was I remember one of the first issues I ever bought was the one where Wolverine tries to have the dad talk with her. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm not like I'm not like these other foster kids you had and stabs him in the throat <laughs> with uh, like, I don't know, like you are like you're just talking about the way I felt anytime some older person tried to like give me a respect your elders like listen to me kid like let's rap a bit turn the chair around type talk uh i did not stab them in the throat but that inclination was there mm -hmm. you know so yeah i mean carving this way to a dark ride on her door uh that's just me in the dead journal era yeah is <laughs> is that what inspired you to take the name dark riders it was a nice coincidence, wasn't it? I mean, it was that, and again, like the Dark Riders happened to David. They were in a, a villain team that Apocalypse had. When I first started reading comics, yeah, one of the uh, early in the one of the issues I got is when they, at the time at least, murder Mesmero. Mm hmm. Unfortunately, he got better. I mean, everybody gets better these days. <laughs> well, now they do for sure. Yeah, that was like Tyler Dayspring and all of that, right? Genesis. Oh, God, Genesis. Yeah, but he's not. I mean, I, again, I dipped in and out. I don't think he actually ended up being Apocalypse's kid. Isn't he Stripe's kid? Didn't we? He's find Cable's out? kid. He's actually Cable's kid. Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, and the question was whether he was adopted or not, but the most recent Family Tree release seems to imply that he was Cable's biological son. Unclear. Doesn't really matter because hopefully he'll never come back. Uh <laughs> the timeline is just littered with hypothetical kids that Gene and Scott had. Exactly. Lots of dubious Summers Gray prior children that just kind of litter the multiverse. I'm waiting for uh, Ruby. I feel like if Scott and Emma hadn't broken up, that character would have inevitably made her way back in time. But now I don't know if that's going to happen. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I was big in X in that era, too. It's it's a non sequitur. But like, I love that detective agency era of X Factor. We love non sequiturs on this podcast. Don't worry about that at all. I mean, I think that there's a lot of untapped potential in, in Marrow. But I also think that there's a lot of untapped. I don't know where they left Layla Miller, but her real mutant power reveal actually, I think, is pretty tragic. So I would like to maybe see her pop up again sometime in the future. 
I think the tricky thing with Layla is that her power seems like it presents a problem for Krakoan resurrection. Now, that is perhaps a story, but she's so tied up in like a Christian idea of the soul, as much of Peter David's work is, that I think they might be nervous about that in the Krakoa era. I don't know, though. I think that could be an interesting story. I imagine she will pop up in Teeny Howard's new book, X-Corp, at some point. It could. I mean, yeah. I mean, to be clear, like, I think a lot of that is all about approach. You Absolutely. Know? You like, can make you know, anything fit. It is, on one hand, yeah, it's definitely under under David. It's definitely tied to a more traditional Christian idea of soul. But to be clear, like, you know. So is Ilyana, you know, like there are like lots Magic of. Magic and Pixie both have daggers made out of parts of their soul. So like, Right. And I think that the. I think that in Ten of Swords, it was established pretty clearly that whatever the Cerebro process is here, what the Marvel Universe considers to be the soul is incorporated into the process. So you can make it work. It's just, Layla is just a tricky character in general, I think. And for more commentaries on the soul in Marvel Universe, uh, follow Darkhold, uh, still coming. Is it still coming? Yes. No, I mean, I know it is. But what can you all, say? All can I you can say, say anything about I, Darkhold? It's still coming. Uh, that's all I can say. Can you tell me if Vicky Montesi is in it? Because I love her. <laughs> I can tell you she's not in it. Uh, oh, bummer. Um, Better luck next time. But it's a different Darkhold, you know, like we said in the in the, in the the solicit, the, the Darkhold here is, the one that has been bopping around the Marvel Universe originally is said to be a copy of a copy. Yes. Uh, so, so nothing, I mean, we're not contradicting anything that happens uh, with Victoria. She is a powerful magic lesbian. My queen. And I would love to work through in the future, but because I didn't want to step in anything um, regarding that, Darkhold deals with uh, Doctor Doom unearthing the original one that is right. written on the flesh of one of the other Elder Gods and will truly drive you mad. Like a very Abdul Alhazred kind of moment. Except, yeah, except he's doomed. So, you know, Wanda shows up and is like, anybody who reads this will instantly go insane. How could you read this? And he says, yeah, anyone but me. I read it a half, <laughs> a half hour ago. I'm doomed. Uh, which ends up being part of the story because he can, he's the only one who can read it and not uh, completely lose his mind. Interesting. But yeah, so that is still coming. And I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen tons of art for it. I can't really say much more than that, but I can say it's coming. Well, I'm excited. I mean, I was excited that it was supposed to come last year and I was sad that it was delayed. I'm a noted Wanda hater to some extent, but I, I think that the character has a lot of potential and I would like to like Wanda. I think it's so possible. I just, someone needs to figure out a way to tackle all of the stuff that the character was made to do essentially. And I think that there have been a couple attempts made, but none of them have really worked for me. And I'd like to see her return to, I mean, for me, it's just, and I don't know if you could say anything about this, but I, I will forever kind of just be disappointed about the retcon that she and Pietro aren't Magneto's children. I think that robs them of so many of their connections to the rest of the universe. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and we're not really... Um... Outside the scope of this story, I would imagine. Correct. Uh, but I will say, like, we're examining her, a lot of her backstory with um, other people related to the Dark Hole, I guess, without spoiling things. I guess mm -hmm. this list do say that it's focused on Cathan. Yeah. So we're tackling aspects of that. Um, but, you know, I'm not in X-Men office. I wouldn't uh, deign to uh, be the arbiter of her past with mutant kind. Right. Uh, uh, but it, yeah, I mean, I think she has some honing to do, certainly, whether she was made to do something or not. I mean, I've said I think the issue is that like 
you know, she was insane. If Jean can eat a planet and we can forgive Jean like we can forgive Wanda, it's just a matter of really the fact that for so many years in Uncanny Avengers, she was written as so completely unrepentant that there just feels like there's work that, I don't know. It's She's a complicated character and she has a very enthusiastic fandom. So I hope that they like- Like the you said, like, I mean, our, we may fall on different sides over whether depowering someone is worse than killing them. But the end, at the end of the day, like Jean killed billions of people. Yeah, a lot of people died because of the decimation. There were- but also, you know, Hal Jordan killed hundreds of thousands of people and they found a way to get to- Absolutely. You can make it work. Hal and Gene both felt pretty bad about it, which I think is important. And Wanda's been a little inconsistent on that point. So I don't know. I think it's doable. <laughs> I have faith in the I have faith in the people writing in the X office and I have faith in you, Steve. So I'm excited to see where it all goes. But she does certainly get sweet, sweet revenge on Doom, I'll say. Like, I, I, Good. I she ever really got him back uh, enough for brainwashing her into marriage, which is really fucked up, or almost doing so. So, yeah, pretty unbelievably fucked up. So, I mean, classic, classic Doom. Yeah. You Weird know. guy. Weird guy. But anyway, so to, to bring it back to the character we're supposed to be talking about, yeah, they, I mean, it's a very personal connection for me, uh, you know, like, because yeah, she's had ups and downs story wise. But it never really shakes my interest because that core of basically being the, you know, the Judd Nelson and Breakfast Club of Wolverine surrogate children is always going to appeal to me. I mean, I was a kid who, you know, uh, after Columbine, perhaps rightfully so or not, that's up to you. Uh, it was illegal uh, to wear tre black trench coats in school. Mm -hmm. um, so being an idiot, I uh, bought a ankle length green army raincoat, which was technically not a trench coat and wore that shit around. Uh, just just to, to thumb your nose at the dress code. So you can see why I would uh, align with someone like Mero. Uh, yeah. Just like to push buttons. If the buttons are there, uh, she has to push them. Absolutely. I think that's a good moment for us to pause for the Cerebro character file on Sarah, as is the only name we're given for her, AKA Mero. I will go through her full publication history and then we will come right back for more with Steve Orlando and answer your questions. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Sarah, better known by the codename Marrow, was a breakout character of late 90s X-Men, thriving in the brief Joe Kelly and Steven Siegel era before falling out of use in the Claremont Revolution period. Created by Jeff Loeb and David Brewer as the child Sarah, and by Scott Lobdell and Joe Majerera as the adult Marrow, she is initially presented as a little Morlock girl, one of the few survivors of the mutant massacre. But after most of the surviving Morlocks are shunted into another dimension with a different timescale, she returns as an adult supervillain, part of the terrorist group Gene Nation. Her time as a member of the X-Men was short, but she has endured as a fan favorite. Sarah first appears in 1994's Cable 15 by Jeff Loeb and David Brewer, as a child living in the Morlock Tunnels beneath Manhattan. Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus's evil brother, he's a reality warper who used to be a cosmonaut, don't worry about it, apparently kills all the surviving Morlocks by flooding their home. He actually teleports them to another dimension called the Hill. The flood is used as a cover-up for their disappearance, and Sarah is swept away by the water and through the portal despite the attempted intervention of the Morlock Thorn, sister of former X-Force member Feral. Through the thin walls of reality between the two dimensions, Sarah observes Thorn, Cable, and Domino trying to find other survivors, and is able to communicate to them in a whisper. She tells them the Morlocks are still alive, but afraid to come out from wherever it is they've been transported. Thorn leads Cable and Domino in performing a Morlock religious rite called the Ceremony of Light which illuminates the tunnels, in the hopes of coaxing the Morlocks back to Earth. 
but only Sarah returns. She thanks them for the gesture, but says the others are still too frightened. Thorn begs Sarah to stay with her, but Sarah retreats through the portal, promising she will return someday. In 1995's X-Men Prime, a one-shot anthology establishing the new status quo after the franchise-wide event Age of Apocalypse, the adult Marrow debuts in a story by Scott Lobdell and Joe Maggerera as the leader of the mutant terrorist organization Gene Nation, comprising Morlocks who grew up brutally on the hill under Mikhail's rule, adhering to the survival of the fittest. Their goal is revenge on all humans, as well as the destruction of any Morlock survivors who have continued to hide in the tunnels rather than fighting back against their oppressors. Marrow has the mutant power of uncontrollable bone growth, with bones sprouting through her skin at random all over her body. She pulls them out to use them as weapons. She's surprised to find that time on Earth has moved much more slowly than in the other dimension, and that only a few months have passed while she and her comrades experienced more than a decade on the hill. She performs the Ceremony of Light and encounters the Dark Beast, the evil version of Hank McCoy from the Age of Apocalypse, who managed to escape the dying reality but was sent into the past of Earth-616. Dark Beast praises Marrow, who calls him the first among us and greets him with religious reverence. She says the Morlocks have been taught he will come to them, his atom children, in their time of need. McCoy affirms that he was the creator of the first Morlocks through genetic experimentation, and identifies Marrow as his work, though a few generations removed. Intrigued, since he had thought the Morlocks a failed experiment, the Dark Beast begins observing the activities of Gene Nation, who start carrying out indiscriminate mass murders of humans in New York City. Marrow next appears in Generation X number 6, where she and her Gene Nation comrade Hemingway capture former Morlock Leech, one of the young wards of the Massachusetts Academy, and use him to negate Emma Frost's powers. Marrow views Leech as an embarrassment, and refuses to live in filth and obscurity like the Morlocks did. She and Hemingway torture Emma, preparing her for the arrival of the first one, Dark Beast, but Emma manages to escape by kicking Leech in the head to get her powers back. Sorry, Leech. Needs must. The Dark Beast is annoyed by how much Marrow has meddled with his own plans at this point, and hints he and Emma have a mysterious past together. He arranges an explosion that sends Marrow and Hemingway fleeing. A few months later, in Uncanny X-Men 325, Gene Nation commemorates the anniversary of the mutant massacre by taking a subway train full of humans hostage and rigging them with explosives. Marrow has her henchmen distract the X-Men so she can take on Storm Solo, because she wants revenge on the Bright Lady who claimed to lead the Morlocks, but, in Marrow's view, abandoned them. Marrow taunts Storm by revealing she attached the detonator to her own heartbeat, knowing Storm has vowed never to kill, and therefore will be unable to save the humans as time continues to tick away. Storm surprises her by plunging her hand into Marrow's chest and ripping out her heart. The bombs are disarmed. Marrow turns up alive a year later in the fourth and final issue of the 1996 Storm solo miniseries by Warren Ellis and Terry Dodson. Storm is brought to the hill by Mikhail Rasputin, again defeats Callisto in a duel for leadership over the Morlocks, and then liberates them all from Mikhail's rule. She relocates them back to Earth, to a new home in Africa, where she expects them to aid local humans who lost everything to famine. Callisto returns to the Morlock Tunnels, where Marrow reveals her own survival to the woman who was the closest thing she had to a mother. It turns out that to compensate for her mutant powers strain on her body, Marrow actually had two hearts, and she's been hiding in the tunnels to recover. Marrow and Callisto begin working as a team, and Callisto is able to be a moderating influence over the younger Morlock, only allowing Marrow to kill in extreme circumstances. Over this period, Marrow develops more control over her powers, with her design settling into the less extreme version that is now most familiar. In Uncanny X-Men 346, Marrow and Callisto target Henry Peter Gyrick, a prominent anti-mutant figure in the U.S. government, in retaliation for his role in Operation Zero Tolerance. 
They battle Spider-Man, who defends Gyrick, but have to team up with Spider-Man when they're attacked by Prime Sentinels, who don't distinguish between mutants and other superhumans. Callisto takes a blast meant for Marrow and is grievously wounded. Gyrick steps in to save Marrow's life, but she still wants to kill him, outraged that Callisto has been harmed. Spider-Man calms her down, and she takes Callisto back to the tunnels to heal. The following issue fills in some of Marrow's backstory and flashback, showing us more of the child called Sarah and her relationship with Callisto. Flashing back to the events of 1983's Uncanny X-Men 169, we revisit Callisto's kidnapping of Warren Worthington III, the original X-Man called Angel. Callisto declares Warren the most handsome man in the world, and therefore feels he will make a fitting husband for the leader of the Morlocks. Sarah, astonished by Warren's beauty, imprints on him as though he were truly a divine being. In the present, Marrow nurses Callisto's wounds, vowing revenge against all on the surface. Callisto begs her to break the cycle of violence, and Marrow relents, agreeing at Callisto's behest to find the X-Men and help them against the forces of Operation Zero Tolerance. She joins Iceman, Dr. Cecilia Reyes, and the Israeli mutant operative Sabra in battling the Prime Sentinels. When the crisis is over, Marrow and Cecilia join Iceman at the X-Mansion, only to find that Cyclops is in mortal danger, with a bomb implanted in his stomach. Don't worry about it. Cecilia works to save Cyclops, and Marrow provides her own bones to be used as medical implements, yanking them out painfully even though they haven't ripened yet. In the first issue by new writer Joe Kelly, X-Men 70, Marrow sets up a room for herself in the basement of the X-Mansion, and carves a note on her door, this way to a dark ride. Marrow's lack of social grace makes her an awkward fit at the mansion, and she's chastised by Cannonball, who says she should be old enough to behave better. Marrow, hurt, reveals she actually doesn't know how old she is. Over in Uncanny X-Men, new writer Steve Siegel reveals more of Sarah's backstory, showing that during the Mutant Massacre, when Gambit realized the team of marauders he brought together on Mr. Sinister's behalf intended to slaughter the Morlocks, attempted to stop the Mutant Massacre, but was unsuccessful. Desperate to do something, he picked up the child Sarah and fled with her to safety. X-Men Unlimited 18 shows that during their escape, they came across Warren Worthington, who had been crucified by the marauder Harpoon. Sarah is devastated to see the angel she had worshipped brought so low. In the present, Marrow continues to visit the tunnels to check on Callisto, and scare off anyone who gets too close to the place where she's convalescing. Though she's slowly incorporated into the X-Men, Marrow refuses to listen to Storm's instructions, and Wolverine takes her aside for a sparring match in the danger room. Wolverine thinks he's gotten through to her and offers her a formal place with the team, but she stabs him in the throat with a bone, running away back to the tunnels. She steals Dr. Reyes's medical books and supplies in the hopes of treating Callisto herself, and prays to a doll she makes of Warren Worthington transformed into Archangel, who apparently became a figure of religious worship to the Morlocks after his rebirth and metamorphosis following the massacre. She's stunned when she comes across Archangel himself in the tunnels, battling the villain Abomination. Abomination mocks Marrow for her supposed ugliness, but Warren tells her that her good deeds make her beautiful. Callisto is secretly cured by the Dark Beast, don't worry about it, it's a dropped plot, and Marrow returns to the X-Men, helping them fight off demons. She begins flirting aggressively with Cannonball, letting him see her topless in order to fluster him. On the team's next mission, the Shadow King, in the guise of the African trickster god Anansi, don't worry about it, looks into Marrow and sees her heart's desire, to be beautiful without her mutant bone growth. She resists his telepathic temptation and rescues Cannonball. She's upset when Cannonball decides to return to care for his sick mother, and is further depressed when Callisto bids her farewell and departs to places unknown. Marrow begins terrorizing the humans of Manhattan again, though only frightening them this time instead of killing anyone. Cannonball stops her, but they encounter two police officers she harmed during her time as a villain. She realizes her actions have had consequences, and she apologizes for what she did to them. After Cannonball departs the mansion, the former Excalibur members Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, and Colossus return to the X-Men. 
Colossus and Marrow have a tense relationship because he witnessed her actions as a villain and does not trust her. When he gives her shit, she gives him shit right back, implying she knows more than she's letting on about Mikhail Rasputin. She and Colossus begin growing closer after he catches her stealing his sketchbook. She likes his drawings and has secretly decorated her room with images of beautiful women. Colossus promises not to tell and draws a beautiful portrait of Marrow herself. Then comes the hunt for Xavier. Don't worry about it. Marrow's growing bond with Colossus helps her understand she doesn't need to be beautiful to be loved. But in X-Men Unlimited 22 by Brian K. Vaughn, we see she still has a chip on her shoulder about it. She torments Shadowcat, tossing a dead rat in her bed and never leaving her be, because she's jealous of Kitty's beauty, and also because she has a very apparent crush on Kitty, which is the strong subtext of the issue. But in any case, they team up to fight Flag Smasher and learn to appreciate each other. Over in Peter Parker's Spider-Man, Howard Mackey does a fun team-up issue where Marrow and Spider-Man fight a vampire thing. Don't worry about it. Under new writers Alan Davis and Terry Cavanaugh, while the X-Men are protecting the Skrull homeworld from Galactus, do not worry about it, Marrow is accidentally injured by Gambit when his power misfires. Gambit, still feeling guilty about his secret role in the massacre of Marrow's people, puts her in a Skrull healing device that has the side effect of giving her much finer control over her mutant power. She develops the ability to shoot bones as projectiles, but more importantly transforms physically into hot marrow the marrow who is hot she has this very silly design with a bone bikini sort of element to her new costume look at the cover art it's on there when they get home she starts flirting with gambit which is super creepy to us as the readers but she doesn't know gambit rescued her when she was a child so like whatever it doesn't go anywhere thankfully after a misunderstanding with gambit marrow decides to go on a road trip with colossus and they talk about his sister Ilyana, who died before marrow ever met him they're having a nice time and bonding and living, laughing, loving, etc. until they're suddenly teleported to the hill. Remember the hill? It's the alternate dimension Sarah grew up in when she had basically the exact same storyline as Ilyana's origin story in Limbo. Mikhail wants to use his reality-warping mutant power to resurrect Ilyana, and he and Colossus get into a fight about it. Here, in flashback, we finally learn more about Marrow's childhood on the hill. Raised by Callisto, Sarah was banished to the bottom of the hill when her powers manifested, as was custom. Mikhail forced the Morlocks to ascend the hill, fighting and killing anyone above them, with only the strongest surviving to reach Mikhail at the pinnacle. Sarah spent years climbing and killing, taking the name Marrow and reaching the top as the toughest creature on the hill. As a reward, she was made a member of Jean Nation. Marrow realizes at last that Mikhail is evil, and her whole life on the hill was insane, and she sides with Colossus. It turns out Mikhail is possessed, maybe, unclear, don't worry about it. They bring him back with them to Xavier's, where they all get dragged into the 12 storyline, which definitely don't worry about it. After the 12 situation winds down, the high evolutionary, don't worry about it, uses a machine to temporarily depower every mutant on Earth. Marrow finally has the appearance she wants, but is at loose ends and decides to help Storm mentor youth in need. She begins dating a guy named Brad. When the X-Men figure out how to destroy the evolutionary's device, Sarah still finds the moral courage to help restore everyone's powers, even though it will cost her the happiness and peace she's found. During the six-month gap, the time jump before Chris Claremont's second run on Uncanny X-Men as part of the Revolution event, Marrow leaves the X-Men under undisclosed circumstances. Nine months later, her creator Scott Lobdell writes a Spider-Man and Marrow one-shot, where we learn her bone growth has gone out of control again, and she's reverted to her earlier appearance from when Lobdell was writing X-Men. Kidnapped and brainwashed by Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I know, this is a wild one, honestly, Marrow has taken on the false identity of Sarah Rushman and has become a sleeper agent assassinating rogue androids. Spider-Man tries to help her after she breaks free of the conditioning, but she's too hurt to trust anyone anymore. She leaps off the Brooklyn Bridge, allowing Spider-Man and S.H.I.E.L.D. to think she's died by suicide. Actually, she returns to the Morlock Tunnels, where she meets with her one-time Gene Nation comrade, Hemingway. 
The following year, Marrow stars in a one-shot by Christina Z called Weapon X Marrow, a prologue to Frank Thierry's 2002 Weapon X series. Marrow joins the new Weapon X program in exchange for the scientist repairing her appearance in a very painful process. Now just looking like a beautiful woman with pink skin and hair, Marrow is tasked with assassinating the new leader of Gene Nation, Degard, who is her old friend. While she's considering her task, she stops by a nightclub and picks up a hot guy. After they have sex, it turns out the man is her teammate Mesmero, who has used his powers to deceive her, and Marrow is devastated. She vows never to be close to anyone again, and murders Degard. I really hate this story. For the next two years, Marrow is a cast member of Frank Thierry's Weapon X, which is a book you don't have to worry about. Here's the gist. She ends up having a cathartic battle with Sabretooth after he defects from the program, and while she fails to kill him, she thinks she's exacted some revenge for the violence he wrought on the Morlocks. She eventually escapes from Weapon X herself, seizing control of Cable's resistance movement, don't worry about it, and transforming it into a new gene nation. Without the experimental treatments from Weapon X, her appearance begins to revert, but she believes this is for the greater good and begins launching terrorist attacks against the program. Weapon X dispatches their operative Agent Zero, better known as Maverick, to kill her, but he decides not to make her a martyr. Instead, he hunts down and kills all her comrades in Gene Nation one by one. This plotline is swiftly dropped when Marrow is among the 90% of Earth's mutants to lose their powers on M-Day in the event called the Decimation, where the insane reality warper called the Scarlet Witch attempts to eliminate mutant kind from Earth. In 2006's Generation M by Paul Jenkins, we see that while deprived of her abilities, Marrow still retains the physical deformities brought on by her mutation. She lives in the sewers again with other depowered Morlocks. As anti-mutant bigots begin massacring depowered mutants in an effort to eradicate the species once and for all, Marrow vows to defend her people until mutants and humans can live in peace. She returns the following year in Peter David's X-Factor as part of the depowered mutant terrorist group called X-Cell. Some mutants have been repowered by Quicksilver using the Terrigen Mists, don't worry about it, and Marrow volunteers to be next. Callisto, who suffered enormously after Quicksilver tested the process on her, tries to convince Marrow not to go through with it. Marrow's attacked by Quicksilver in the fight that breaks out with X-Factor Investigations, and Callisto drags her away. It turns out the repowering process is indeed volatile, and the repowered mutants begin spontaneously exploding, so good instinct on Callisto's part not to do that. Seven years later, in Cy Spurrier's 2014 relaunch of X-Force, Marrow becomes an operative of Cable's latest team. She's been repowered somehow and is even more powerful than before, which she reveals is due to the scientific experimentation of a man called Volga. As an apparent side effect of the process, Marrow has had a dramatic shift in personality. She's now strangely chipper and manic, almost childlike. She speaks at times to someone called Baby who isn't there. Volga has weaponized other depowered mutants, triggering a massive explosion in Alexandria, Virginia. X-Force tracks him down, and it's revealed that Marrow discovered she was pregnant during Volga's experiments, and allowed the procedure to continue anyway. She was successfully repowered, but the pregnancy miscarried. Devastated and practically catatonic, Marrow wandered into Alexandria as the explosion took place, and was found by Cable. With the help of X-Force member Dr. Nemesis, Marrow was restored to consciousness through the selective blocking of her recent memories. This is what actually caused the shift in her personality. The team discovers Volga's process is unstable, most of the other subjects have died, and Marrow may only have a year to live. When their teammate Phantom X betrays them, using a Volga process to become even more powerful, Marrow is even more determined to find the scientist. When they find Volga, Marrow observes his torture with sadistic pleasure. He begs them to kill him, but he's more valuable alive, so they ignore his request. As a last-ditch provocation, Volga reveals to Marrow that she only came to him for testing. He was the one who decided to use the process on her, which led to the death of her baby. He wanted to harvest the fetus for stem cells. 
Marrow stabs him to death over Cable's objection. She finds some closure, but still feels guilt over the death of her child. When she discovers treachery on Cable's part, she kills him too, knowing he'll clone himself back to life, don't worry about it, and battles Phantom X, pushing herself to the limit to defeat him. During Matthew Rosenberg's run on Uncanny X-Men, Marrow joins Emma Frost's new Hellfire Club after Emma, estranged from the X-Men following the war with the Inhumans, do not worry about it, has claimed the title of Black King from Sebastian Shaw. Emma gets Marrow a new wardrobe and cleans up her act a bit, and honestly, you don't need to worry about any of this stuff at all. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Marrow is one of many mutant criminals summoned and offered amnesty if they become citizens of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. In 2021's Marauders 19 by Jerry Duggan and Stefano Caselli, Marrow is part of a Morlock strike team enlisted by Callisto to secure the Lowtown area of Madripoor and establish it as a sanctuary for mutants and the poor. In A Women of Marvel story by Sophie Campbell and Eleonora Carlini, we see that early in her time in Krakoa, Marrow had to room with the former Morlock and former X-Force member Feral. They don't get along at first, but slowly become friends. In Steve Orlando and Andrea Bricardo's Curse of the Man-Thing, X-Men, it's revealed that Marrow has joined a group called the Dark Riders, a strike team of monstrous mutants mentored by Ilyana Rasputina, the Sorceress Magic. After a strong fan showing in the X-Men election, the future looks bright for this character who was once discarded. Provided a writer who cares gets the opportunity. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I'm going to jump right into our listener questions because Steve is on a tight schedule today. So this is going to be a slightly shorter episode of Cerebro than you might be accustomed to. You're all very spoiled. Every time something's less than two and a half hours, it's like a short episode this week. I'm like, well, sometimes my guests don't have four hours. So... Henry Gray writes, Dear Connor and Steve, once again, I want to say how grateful I've been for this pod over the last year. It's generally the podcast I'm most excited for every week. Keep up the amazing work. Well, thank you. On to Marrow. I'm so glad she's a subject of this week's episode as it feels like it coincides with a bit of a resurgence for the character, most obviously as part of Steve's awesome Curse of the Man thing and as part of the X-Men vote election. In Curse of the Man thing, I felt like I was reading the Marrow I remember loving from the 90s for the first time in way too long. I haven't kept up with all her appearances, but when she's popped up in books I've read, something has just felt off. So huge kudos to Steve for bringing that Marrow je ne sais quoi back. Also, that look is great. The ideal balance between the Morlock outfits and her later prettified Davis look. Okay, I'll stop the praise now. Why do you think Marrow was so unceremoniously dumped from the X-Line in the early 2000s? So much time had been invested in a very particular arc for the character, with pushes for her in other media too, like video games. She felt to me to some extent like a new twist on the female viewpoint character like Kitty and Jubilee. And kind of queer. Her isolation from the team, her unrequited crushes. Regardless of how Davis handled the transformation side of things, I remember loving her journey and finding her identifiable as a baby gay who didn't feel comfortable with my appearance. Was it simply a case of writers like Morrison, Claremont, etc. not wanting to use her? Was there some editorial mandate against her? It always felt like there must be something I don't know about why she disappeared. But maybe that's just a confused young reader in me talking who missed Sarah. Sorry for the long email. Off to seek all of her appearances between 2001 and 2021 I've missed. Thanks, Henry from Edinburgh. What was your approach when you got the okay to use her in Curse of the Man thing? What was your thought process about getting back to basics with the character? Well, I think I was lucky uh, in that with the Krakoa era, a lot of people have sort of found their evergreen characterization again. Mm -hmm, Like soft reboots for everybody. Yeah. For lack of a better, you know, phrase. Um, So, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, and hopefully get a chance to again, but I wanted to write a version of her that was uh, sort of an elevated form of where she was, uh, where she generally is, you know, I guess is what I would say, like 
someone who has the anger she had when she debuted, or I should say the tendencies and interests in bloodletting, but also is more, you know, kind of like what I did with Midnighter is also more at peace with it right now. So we've, we've, you know, she has in many ways accepted aspects of her personality uh, and isn't down on herself for them and is learning to enjoy them in the right context. And to me, that's, that's the motion. A lot of us who've gone through trauma, like her shoot for, you know, like mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't rewrite, you can't always just, you know, trim things from your personality, but what you can do is learn how to focus them in the right way and manage them. So I wanted to sort of pay homage to her met her macro story, but also give hints that at least in the Krakoa era, she's, she's a little more at peace. Uh, for better or worse, with who she is, which again, that that that's that's the motion we all hope to make. Absolutely. Jacob Roth writes, "Hi Connor and Steve, big fan of the show. Unbelievably excited you're covering my favorite Morlock. Here's the question: Despite her relatively low footprint in comics, only slightly over 12 Zaladanes, she has appeared in the Wolverine and the X Men animated show, Marvel vs. Capcom 2, X Men Legends, and the first Deadpool film. Seriously, Google it. I was shocked too. It's kind of like the EGOT for comic book characters to hit the main three adaptation formats. What do you think it is about Marrow that makes people want to include her in their projects? Love your Man Thing Mini, Steve." Yours truly, a bonehead. <laughs> <laughs> so on the Marvel versus Capcom front, I think that when they were developing that game, she was a major character still in the comic book. It comes out in 2000, which is when she gets dropped in the six-month gap. But obviously, development on something like that takes longer. The two X-Men characters they added to that game, who they hadn't already created for previous video games, were Marrow and Cable. And if you look at late 90s X-Men, that's sort of the two you would pick. What do you think, Steve? What do you think is like her enduring appeal to people making adaptations? Having been on the other side of it, I think for things like her passing cameos in the Fox franchises or things like Marvel versus Capcom, it's it's a it's a strong, a very strong visual hook. You know, mm-hmm. uh, for something like uh, a fighting game, especially that series, like it's pretty light on story. You know, you're not necessarily picking someone you empathize with like you would if you're reading a book, but you are picking someone who looks cool and can do cool shit. And on a very primal level, you know, she pops bone daggers out of her body and kills people with them. Yeah, it's cool. It's a very strong visual hook. And as well, that actually goes for these cameo appearances in films, too, because you instantly know it's her. Right. I think it's like we talked about this in the Pixie episode. She's one of those characters you can throw into a group shot very easily because in a huge group shot of like 50 mutants, you go, ah, there's Pixie. And Marrow is like that as well. It's like, oh, there's a girl with red hair, like pink magenta kind of hair, I guess, and bones sticking out all over her body. That's Marrow. It's like a very easy signifier, even if her appearance has varied artist to artist and run to run so much, that core visual identity is still really strong. So if you're doing an adaptation, it's an obvious visual marker that might be appealing to pick up. And I think that like it is, you know, would that have continued depending on on, on shifting focuses in the main line? I don't know, because you see like, especially in the films, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason with who shows up other than who is like, you know, who has a cool visual hook. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still waiting for Bliss to show up in some movie with her talking tongue. I would love that. She had a great showing in the recent Marauders in Lowtown. So I think that we're in for like a bliss renaissance, perhaps. We hope. We can only hope. Stay tuned on the gala. I heard her tongue gets its own little tuxedo. Good for her. That is also a joke. But, um... (laughs) Well, you know what? Maybe we'll manifest it. 
At the very least, someone should draw that. If you are listening and you are someone who would like to draw Bliss at the Hellfire Gala with an outfit on her tongue, send it in. Cody Coulomb writes, Dear Connor, thanks so much for this wonderful podcast. I wish I had someone in my social circle with whom I could discuss obscure X-Men characters for two to three hours at a stretch. But joining with you and your guests is definitely the next best thing. Steve, I'm a huge fan of your work. Your Midnighter series is one of my all-time favorites, a masterful blend of heroics, hyperviolence, humor, and heart. On the subject of Marrow, I started reading comics in the early 90s, including Gen X from the start. So Marrow's appearance in that series was quite striking. She was a great villain, a terrorist twisting the plight of the Morlocks into bloodthirsty revenge against their human oppressors, ultimately dying for her cause. But then, like so many promising X-Men villains over the years, she joined the X-Men. I enjoyed the fractious element she instilled in the team early on, but after that, it felt like her rough edges were filed down smoother and smoother until she ultimately faded away. From a narrative point of view, in this exciting new Krakoan era, what place do you think there is for a would-be mutant revolutionary with the completely unsubtle ability to pull bones from her body and stab people with them? I feel like Mara's righteous anger on behalf of mutant kind is one of her defining characteristics. What do you do with a character like that long term? Um, I mean, I think, so first of all, I think her anger has kind of gone mainstream, right? Like she was radical in the 90s. And now everyone's, ra- like Kra- Krakoa is a radical step for the whole species. No more radical than Cyclops telling the Fantastic Four that they're not Franklin's real parents, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, and actually he's been like that since the Bendis era. Yeah. So in many ways, I feel like she's just sitting back chuckling that like, 20 years ago, real time, Storm was ripping at her heart for doing stuff that basically everybody's on board with now. Less murder, but I I think that a lot of her anger has been adopted, slightly sanitized, but adopted as policy on Krakoa. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, the whole line has made a move toward the radical perspectives that groups like Gene Nation or the Mutant Liberation Front presented in the 90s as evil. And now it's like, well, actually... Minority politics have evolved to such a point where radical action, like this now, don't kill innocent people, obviously, but... It was the mur- much like Killmonger, it's the murder uh, that, that was... Yeah, that's the issue. It's not the politic behind it, which is usually pretty sound. I think that a good place for her now is honestly where she has been put, which is helping with Krakoan outreach in places like Madripoor. I mean, the whole Lowtown thing with the Morlocks that Jerry Duggan has been doing is, I think, a smart place to take those characters because they've always been good at building communities of their own. They get to now help people who are experiencing capitalist oppression, which is something that the Morlock stories were always kind of about. I think that there's a lot of potential there, and I'd like to see her doing that more broadly. I mean, I think the Marauders would be a good place for her, particularly given her long history with the actual like the original marauders the evil ones since she's one of the only survivors of the mutant massacre when she was a small child then the time travel happened don't worry about it well the dimensional travel once mikhail rasputin gets involved it's just a big don't worry about it most of the time for me god bless him where do you think the character might go next or do you not want to share because you might have pitches Um, well, I mean, I, I know where I would take her next if I had a chance. And, and like, I think the, the issue is that like, she's best when she's a provocateur. So wherever she goes, she has to be causing trouble. She has to be causing trouble. Or I also really like that personality type as sort of, uh, she does still strike me even in the Krakoa era as someone sort of like, uh, not, not to mention the cursed Joss, like fuck that guy, but, uh, <laughs> like, like, like the operative, uh, in Serenity where like, yeah. 
her self-esteem is probably up and down in a way that she might see herself as someone who still has to do the dirty work so that other people don't have to. And so I think that there is, because she is still a radical uh, amongst the radicalized nation. So I think that there's certainly moments where, you know, whatever shitty anti-mutant villains think that they've been high-roaded by someone like Storm. And then when they walk into their bathroom, Marrow's sitting there ready to cut their you know, fucking tongue off. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, you didn't get away completely scot-free and she 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 can be there to remind people that. And I think that's a very her scene too, you know? Like, mm-hmm. uh, not that I want her going around the Marvel Universe and collecting tongues, but although... But some tongues should be collected in the Marvel Universe, right if I'm being tongues, quite honest. The, yeah. The, the, the tongues of the Sapien League or that whatever that church was, the crucified skin, uh, they, they've got tongues, so. There you go. Krakoa welcomes writes, what do you think Marrow's favorite dinosaur would be? It makes sense to me that she would have one if she'd had a more stable upbringing. Alternatively, what dinosaur would she most identify with? Like that she would look at the bones on display and think, it me. Oh my God. Her favorite dinosaur? Can we just say Stegron? Love that. That's a great choice. I think a Marrow and Stegron story would be delightful. Did you um, get a chance yet to read the Women of Marvel story that Marrow's in? I thought that was really cute. I didn't, uh, unfortunately, get to read it yet. Uh, you should. It's good. I'm it's way cute. behind, but I. But yeah, I'm... no, I know you are. That's why I ask because I know that you've been like knee deep in deadlines. But Sophie Campbell wrote a really fun little story about her and Farrell being roommates on Krakoa. That was cute. Oh, I did see excerpts of that actually. Yeah, and I did like a lot of. It's it. short. You should just have a peek at it. It's cute, and um, it felt maybe like Farrell and Marrow were like dating by the end of it, which I wouldn't be opposed to. Quite honestly, you think that you're projecting like two women can be friends, you know, Connor. <laughs> I know, I know, but like Farrell is queer, and no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just being, I'm just being an ass. No, 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 uh, I know, I know, I know you are, I know you are. No, I know that you would never question bisexual vibes in a comic. That's like half your jam most of the time, right? So that leads into a couple questions about your work that are not directly related to Marrow. Maxwell Warner writes, Hello there, Connor and Mr. Orlando. First of all, Steve, I'm writing to say that Curse of the Man thing was a blast. Suddenly steeped in X history, old and new, I was especially delighted to see a too short but still strong showing by Jennifer Kale, who's a personal favorite character of mine. And I'll remind Connor, not a Ghost Rider character. I referred to her earlier this month as a Ghost Rider character because she's Noble Kale's cousin, and I thought that more people would know Ghost Rider than Man-Thing. I apologize, Maxwell, not my intention to undercut Man-Thing. She's a great character that's too often overlooked, so thank you for giving Jen her first appearance in six years. The ending of Man-Thing teased that there's more Man-Thing content on the way. I'm sure you can't say much, but what are the chances that my favorite Florida gal will be involved? She deserves another chance in the spotlight. Bonus points if her baby brother comes back to life so I can fully pretend the Witches miniseries never happened. Connor, I never thought I'd be that person that nags all their friends to listen to their favorite podcast, but Cerebro has converted me and I have no regrets. Thank you, and I'll see you on Krakoa. Warmest regards, Maxwell. Well, thank you, Maxwell. That's a great email. What's the uh, skinny on future man thing and perhaps future adventures for Jennifer Kale? Also bisexual. Jennifer Kale and Victoria Montesi should have an adventure or maybe should date, honestly. I don't know. But is dating not an adventure? Certainly when you're the daughter of Cathan, I think dating is, uh, I mean, imagine guess who's coming to dinner, but your dad is Cathan. That would be fun. I think that was basically every Raven arc in the 80s, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It would be It would be very New Teen Titans. But actually. that's, but that's a different company. Uh, yep. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, so first of all, thank you uh, for checking out Curse of the Man thing. And I was really happy to get that, Kale, uh, even though it's just one page in because you know, with everything we had to do and, and everything that was set out that we had to accomplish with the series, 
it was hard. You know, I wanted to get Howard in there too. I was like, who are his main, uh, you know, mm-hmm. main, main supporting? And it just didn't all work out because we, you know, we had to get Spider-Man. We had to cover X-Men. We had to do Avengers. We had to do all these things. There were so many characters in those three issues. But all that said, in regards to a future, uh, look, Connor knows, and he might've talked about this in the past. Like I, of course, like we have a pitch in for a man thing series right now. I have not, I have Omerita with my clients. I don't talk about what they're pitching on the podcast. Well, what I'm about to say is the future depends on not just how curse of the man thing sells, but how the collection sells when it comes out in a couple mm-hmm. months. And that, I mean, first of all, issue one, it was the best man thing launch in decades is what they told me. So that bodes well. Are they going to call the trade curse of the giant size man thing? Because I think maybe they should. That I think fun. that's maybe just the annual, you know? Yeah, fair, 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 fair. Um, it's, you know, but I'll promise giant size. And like most guys, it'll just be average once you actually. <laughs> you know. Above average man thing. It, that depends a lot on how the collection does. But if we come back, I'd love to examine more about what's been going on with Jennifer. Uh, you know, I wouldn't blow the cast out too big because we still need to cement man things new status quo which is a very different status quo from the one he's had previously well we wanted to make him matter you know and yeah and now that he has the dreadscape inside him he has this nightmare dimension inside him basically he can swallow anyone yeah it's kind of cloak and daggery as you saw with belasco and then you have ted salas in there basically the rod serling yeah as like a conscious entity which is a, a twist that i liked yeah, but we also didn't want to change fundamentally how he moves through the Marvel Universe. So once you're inside, yeah, like Ted is there and he can talk. But he can't control the Man-Thing outside working as of a that. team, basically. Right. You know, and once you, when you see Man-Thing in the Marvel U, he is still this horrific, shambling, silent mass. It's actually scarier, the idea that Ted is in there and can't do anything. I mean, that locked-in oh, yeah. thing I mean, is horrifying. I mean, the whole the setup is basically my ode to, oh God, I can't remember what it's called, but the famous, famous Batman the Animated Series episode where Clayface swallows Bruce and he's trying mm-hmm. to pull out. And that's horrifying. And like, that's how I see, you know, I can just see people struggling as they're pulled inside Man-Thing's body. And yeah, I would love to explore more with Jennifer. And also like, um, it was a small canon note uh, that the that we expanded the the Kurt Connors thing in Curse of Man thing but I think they have a really great interplay as well so my I mean if we had the series I'd love to explore more I mean I'm not going to spoil everything I pitched but there would be uh, more development with Jennifer for sure and there'd be more development for Kurt because I think that they are two sides of the same coin like Kurt is someone who has gone through and as you saw thanks to Spider-Man and the help of others kind of completed the journey that that Ted still needs to go on. Yeah, I'm really out of the loop on Spider-Man, so that was a surprise to me. I was like, oh, the lizard's sane. That's good. Good for him. Love that for him, you know? But still, but still, you know, still kind of kind of a bit still of lizardy, but like nice to check in with Kurt and see that he's doing better. Last question and then we'll just kibitz for a bit until you have to go. Sure. Mike Smith asks What's the biggest inspiration for the new character, Somnus? The outfit is amazing and I'm intrigued. So Somnus, if you're not aware, is a new character that Steve and Luciano Vecchio created for the new Marvel's Voices Pride issue coming out next month. I spoke a bit about this in the announcement, but I'm happy to go into it more. Uh, You know, Somnus, uh, and it's so hard to dance through the raindrops of not throwing shade at other uh, gay characters. Um, But (laughs) suffice to say, many of which I created, by the way, so I'm, I'm just shitting on myself. But, uh, you know, I wanted to take the opportunity to create a character, uh, especially in the Krakoan era at Marvel, that sort of, you know, we talk about the struggle in the present a lot, and there's obviously a lot more work to do. 
but I also in Boston live on either sides of my house. I live uh, between two older gay men in their early 70s. Mm-hmm. And I wonder all the time what even sitting and having a drink with me and my boyfriend looks like to them or what even like seeing my young gay cousin who's 20 what that, that life looks like to them, people who, you know, lived through the AIDS crisis and things right. like that. And, you know, we love to talk about, I guess semi-controversially, but in the, in the queer community, we love to talk about how much work there is to do and how much of a struggle it still is. But we have made astronomical strides as well. And, and I wanted to create a character that could celebrate that. You know, Somnus is someone based on, I mean, I had uh, family members in vaudeville, for example, that were, I mean, that were, queer but not out in the i mean even before when somnus was born when was he born like well you'll see in the story but i will say <laughs> but, but he's a baby he, he's a baby boomer so like gotcha it, i mean I, I mean i'll say like it's because it's going to be out next month i mean somnus is a character at least his story i won't talk about his connection to the to, to crack right. things like that uh you know he is um in his 30s in the 60s he's the he's the son both his parents were lost world war ii or shortly after and, you know, he is a gay man and a mutant who's in the closet as both, but he also has to raise his three younger siblings. Uh, and he's someone who, like a lot of people uh, in that era, um, basically put their own happiness on hold due to their family obligations. So um, this is not like a, I'm not here to talk about like an overly sad story. Uh, it's not a suffering gaze story. He lives a good but compromised life. And then when he returns in the present, he can live more freely. Precisely. So that's what in, that's what enrages the, the other actor in the story. Uh, you know, he shares a night. So basically the compromises for him is because he has these powers. Um, you know, he can have a one night stand and he will experience basically a lifetime relationship with someone in one night for them, you know, because he can control other people's dreams. So that happens with someone that we know and you'll see. Uh, and then once he comes around to the present and, you know, he dies of old age in his 80s, surrounded by people who love him, but that don't really know him. And I think that that is something that a lot of older queer folks deal with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's not good enough uh, for the other. I mean, it's Dakin. I mean, I guess I said I was working with him. So he, <laughs> he hooks up with Dakin in the 60s, uh, but that's not something Dakin's ready for. You know, he's not ready for a relationship or to deal right. with himself. And he's kind of frightened how much he was comfortable living a normal life inside this dream. So he pieces out in the 60s. And once he realizes that Carl Somnus has passed away in the present, uh, especially with Krakoa going on and the resurrection protocols, I mean, then he a compromised life is not good enough for him. He can't stand that. Well, this is a really interesting question because I've thought a lot about what about people who die of old age, mutants? Like, are we going to just resurrect them as young people? Because in that case, mutants are immortal now, which I think is the implication of stories like in Excalibur when Apocalypse says to Selene, they're all externals now, you know, but we yeah. haven't seen it yet happen on the page. Well, that's the thing. Like the the, the basic thesis of Somnus's story is, you know, what's the, what what's the point in Utopia if you can't share it, right? Right. Uh, uh, so so he comes back in the present, having lived again. I mean, he's not he you know not a life of torture, but uh, not a life where he could live his truth. But not a free gay life. He gets a second chance in Utopia to live as himself, both as a mutant and and as a gay man. So. How that responds to other things, I think you'll see. I mean, well, I'm excited. 
to my understanding, you at least have to have been alive in a time when Cerebro could clock your mind. So, I mean, that's why it was important that Somnus, I mean, he lived to the present. He was just like 90. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because there needs to be a backup. There's a plot right now in Marauders where Lourdes Chantel might have died before Cerebro was backing up all of the mines. So Emma's not sure if they can resurrect her. But will it, I mean, in a future story, it'll have to be addressed as well, because usually when you pop it out of an egg, uh, you pop out as basically as you were when you died. But Somnus comes back in his primes. But yeah, I mean, with him, uh, the, the main thrust for me was just telling I, I, that sort of generational story. I don't think we've had the privilege of telling yet. Uh, right. Either with, at least in mainstream big two comics, either with or without metaphor. Uh, and he has both, you know, he's he's an older generation of mutant. Uh, and he's an older generation of gay man. And so I, I, now that he's back in Krakoa, that perspective to me is fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that perspective to me is one that I, I mean, him compared to like, you know, kids, his perspective, it's a version of what you have with Gray Malkin. But I almost feel like Gray Malkin's life was so long ago that it's not relatable. I have to say, when I saw the announcement, my thought was, oh, it's like Gray Malkin, but done better not to like shit on that book but i think it's exactly that i mean gray malkin it is like gay man hate crime to death in the 1800s it's very different than gay man watched all of the progress over the 20th century but didn't feel like he could be part of it and now is young again in a time when he can be himself i mean that's a very different story you know i mean that's the wish fulfillment you know and and it is an ode to the 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 elders of our community that i think uh, i mean i'm not trying to start fires here but i think some of us tend to ignore you know yeah, I think no we, absolutely I, I, especially in our younger i mean i'll talk about myself when i was younger i was guilty of that i just wanted to take my shirt off and you know do whatever and and not think about the future when i was in my early 20s and that was short-sighted, you know, much like a lot of things I thought when I was in my early 20s. So right. um, what I can do now is 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 try to talk about that and and, and turn that into a character and, and pay homage to people. Because, yeah, like things are not always easy for us now, but things are not like they were. Well, first of all, even 10 years ago, uh, but certainly not 40, 50, 60 years ago. So right. I think that it's and that to explore what that means for the mutant community also is exciting for me. So I'm excited if we get to work with him more, not just to engage into the real world aspects, but also the fictionalized aspects, because I mean, the progress mutants have made is also astronomical. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot to explore there. And also just a lot to, I mean, I'm, I'm blue skying the character, but I mean, listen, this is someone who probably sat and watched Magneto's attack on Cape Canaveral like it was the moon landing with his right. with his younger siblings, you know, and imagine the conflict there. I mean, there's tension to be had over the fact that a lot of the actions of people that are accepted on Krakoa probably kept him in the closet in this, you know, in the in the past, because we don't want to say it actually happened in the 60s. Do we? Yeah, it's tricky, right? But, you know, he's now waking up side by side a lot of people that he that, that probably scared him uh, about what being a mutant meant. So I think there's endless tension to derive there. And there's also great wish fulfillment in that character with, with what he stands for. So I am I'm proud of all the characters I created, but probably him. And even though it's the other guys, Firebrand are my two favorite originals that I've ever created. Mm hmm. Well, I think that that sounds really exciting. I'm excited to read it. I'm excited about that anthology in general. I will say 
because it's something that has been pointed out by a lot of people. I do wish that there were more trans characters active because I do think in terms of the work that we have to do in the present, a lot of it is work for that community. And I know that Crystal Fraser and Lila Sturgis are involved, so I'm excited to see what they're doing. And I hope that we can see more characters and more stories and more writers getting to tackle that, you know? Absolutely. And and there is a ton more work to be done for the trans community. The being a cisgender person. Well, no, you wouldn't be the person to do that. I get that. Well, I've done trans rep before, but not specifically stories that focused on the experience of it. The experience. So the issue is that like, if there were more characters, I would a hundred percent love to include them in teams and books. Right. And even if not, I could create some, but I would still want like those stories dealing with their intrinsic experiences to be told. You would want an authentic, a writer who knows what they're talking but, you about. No, like yeah. I, I think so. There's only, not that I can't do anything, but there's only so much I can do. I can put like, much like when you have people create characters and then hand them off, like I could certainly put someone on the board, right. but I would want to be able to hand it off when it came time for like a solo focus issue or a solo series to folks who live that life. Yeah, I mean, I think that a great example right now is that Al Ewing brought on Crystal Frazier as a consultant when he created Charlene McGowan. And now that Charlene is spinning off into the Gamma Flight mini, Crystal is writing that. And I think that Al is like co-writing, but it's, you know, the, the idea is if we're doing a story about this character that's really about her, you should have the trans woman writing the story. You know what I mean? So and co-writing also is what I prefer to do, honestly, rather than just throwing people to the wolves for lack of a better phrase. Right, because it's hard. Yeah, certainly like your first uh, book I is... find that the best way to learn is on the job. So I do prefer to, to I mean, like, I mean, I did, when I created American Dreamer in Commanders of Crisis, it was with uh, L.A. Thornhill, who's black and non-binary. Mm-hmm. And that is a better experience and and uh, for for them to go through the whole process with someone who's been through it before than just to be dropped into a room and be told, go do this. And so, right. no, of course. and then also professionally, you know, on the business side, if you are co-writing with someone like Al's doing or like I've done in the past, in theory, if you have a reputation for professionalism, like I hope I do, like <laughs> that then gets, you know, there's a little bit of a rub there that goes on to those other folks. Again, it's not just like, here's the deep end, do it or not. It's okay. Here's the first couple of times we work with this other person and Steve, everything went smoothly. Let's work with them again. Right. So I'm really excited about what Elle's doing. That's all the long version of it. And 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 I hope that stuff like that continues. I hope to be able to do it myself. I mean, look, the the going way back, the non-binary issue of Supergirl 19, I co-wrote with Vita. Uh, and now, obviously, you know, like the tables are turned and Vita's writing New Mutants and crushing it. Yeah. <laughs> you introduced me to Vita years ago at FlameCon. They were working on that with you then, I think. And now I got to say, I would read literally anything Vita Ayala writes. I mean, I think that stuff is super important. And it needs to be said that like part of it is as, as a creator is not being such a coward that you can't admit what you don't know. You know, wh when I came to that issue with Vita... It's because, you know, I knew how I would tell the story in this case of what, you know, what would me, a young queer teenager, have wanted from Supergirl as my best friend or something. Mm -hmm. But there could be more said about it. And that's why I reached out to them and it became so much deeper. And, and, and beyond that, uh, going on a, an Afro-Puerto Rican non-binary character like Lee that Lee, Vita created with me, you know, my guesses, I'll be quite honest, as to what they would want from Supergirl were not what they wanted. And I'm fine saying that, you know, right. like we, it, it is an act of ego, you know, to think that just because we're writers, we uh, I don't personally think there's nothing we shouldn't be allowed to write. But sometimes extensive research and extensive experiential things are involved in doing that.
you can't treat lived experiences like you're writing about fucking Krypton. And this is why it always bothers me when everybody's like, well, I'm not an alien, but I can write Superman. So of course me, a 65 year old man can write women. I'll always remember I was on a panel and someone said that. And uh, another guy leaned in and he was like, yes, Paul, but women are real. And, and the whole crowd went silent. So I'm a big advocate, you know, uh, 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 of not just having folks consult, but uh, of co-writing with new, with voices that need a spotlight. And then, you know, yeah, once you've shown the people that pay the bills that these fo folks are reliable, set them up for success. Yeah. That, that's what we got to do. I don't think, I don't think it's fair to throw people in the deep end. Comics is a wild ride and it took me almost 20 years to learn the ropes. So I think it's unfair to expect that folks will know that, you know, with tw even 20 weeks in. Absolutely. No, it's a crazy, cra I mean, I'm very adjacent and I'm always just like, yikes, wow. There's just so much that you don't know until you're in it, you know? Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the pod and being my guest. It's my pleasure. I only had one allergy strike during the entire <laughs> time. So. Well, I really appreciate you making the time because I know you're super busy. So thank you again. Why don't you plug anything else you want to plug? Magneto and the Mutant Force is coming soon. A one shot in the Heroes Reborn. I was going to say, yeah, let's make Somnus a success. And then hopefully I can, someone else will be talking about him in a year. Right. Uh, and, and, and I'll come back. I'll, I'll, get, I'll ghost in. As for uh, what I would plug, yes, Magneto and the Mutant Force is coming out. You know, that's the only X-Men one shot I ever write. I'm incredibly proud of that. It's got a wild cast that I'm super excited about. It's got wit. It's got pathos. It's got heart. Uh, and it's got Emma Frost punching out Power Princess. <laughs> and and playing off a feud that began in the fictional uh, crisis on Counter-Earth number seven that we made up. That doesn't Gotcha. I mean, I'm interested to see... I don't know, particularly this week, because there's so much fucking stuff happening over there. But like, I find Sabra a really fascinating character. She's the only person on the team that is not really, that, that doesn't sell Emma Frost shit for a second when she shows up. You know, on this podcast, we've talked a bit about flag suit characters and how complicated they can be. And I have, I don't know, like, as I mean, we're like American Jews talking about this. Like, I'm just not a big Israeli government person. We're, we're on the same, we're on the we're, same. I know we're on the same page there. But I just think that as like the Marvel character who has to carry all of that. It's another character that I hope I get to work with more, you know, because I only had mm -hmm. 30 pages. And that doesn't even get to our surprise reveal at the end. Pick that up and uh, I'll say as well, Extreme Carnage this summer. I'm, I'm writing with an amazing team, Philip Kennedy Johnson, Clay McLeod Chapman and Alyssa Wong. It just happens that most of the things I'm getting offered in Marvel are related to my video game taste from the early 90s. I played the Maximum Carnage SNES game. Loved that SNES game. I was very bad at it. Society, and now we're getting to do a, a book that kind of uses them both. So very exciting to me. And listen, I'm going to be doing a Toxin one shot again. And just super proud of that, too. We basically made a gooey version of Shazam. Uh, and, and <laughs> well, I love that for you. I'm excited to see more from you, hopefully, in the X office. And I am, as always, excited to follow your work. Why don't you tell listeners where they can follow you online? Uh, yeah, so uh, Twitter, at the Steve Orlando, uh, and Instagram, at the Steve Orlando. Um, Twitter, if you want slightly more comics and slightly less health and fitness, uh, and my pen. Yeah. Instagram. If you want thirst traps, Instagram, if you want slightly more health and fitness, shut up Connor and, uh, <laughs> and slightly less comics, but I do both, um, as with other things in life, I do both. So.
both teams always. I love that you're in the Marvel Pride anthology and the DC Pride anthology. That felt very appropriate. I'm glad you noticed and those stories couldn't be more different. Uh, so I'm very excited. We have an emotionally rich, deep, decades long six pager in Marvel Pride. And then we have one that's just about good old fashioned revenge in the DC one with Midnighter and Extraño just fucking murdering some Nazi vampires. We love to see it. That's my personality. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me, Steve. I'm really excited about all of that. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page of the podcast. You can also find a link there to the Cerebro Listener Discord, which is a fun environment to chat about X-Men. Please don't bring any bad vibes. You can also find a link there to the Patreon, patreon.com slash CerebroCast. The third bonus episode is coming soon. It will be a full breakdown of the Hellfire Gala lookbook with guest Josh Cornillon. And next week's episode of Cerebro is a pretty exciting one. Mike Carey will be joining me to talk about Joanna Cargill, better known as Frenzy, a character who he really revolutionized in his beloved run on the X-Men, spinning out of Age of X. So if you have questions about Joanna Cargill, Frenzy, or Mike Carey's work on the X-Men in general, send those to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. I'm really excited about this episode. Would you believe he heard the Ladies Mastermind episode and thought it was great and decided to come on because... That is the power of illusions. Thanks so much again for listening. And until next time, everybody, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.